I'm Lauren. I'm Paula. I'm Alex. And this is the Journey to Transformation. Welcome. So, listeners, as you know, me and Tia have talked a lot about data collection on this podcast. We've talked about monitoring and evaluation, the challenges with collecting data, but also the role of nonprofit organizations in making sure the feedback loop is closed. So when we collect data, we often don't return to those communities to tell them how that data is being used or not. And so to help us really unpack this topic and to better understand how the nonprofit humanitarian development sector can improve closing the feedback loop, I am joined by two amazing guests, Alex Ross, the director of Talk to Loop, and Mpale Nakonko Malimba, an experienced monitoring and evaluation professional who has been evaluating Talk to Loop's work. Talk to Loop is an organization that uses innovative approaches to monitoring and evaluation to empower communities to hold decision makers accountable. They facilitate real-time data collection analysis through cutting-edge tools and platforms, enabling communities to voice their concerns and provide feedback to those in power. So welcome, Alex and Impala. It's so great to have you here. Tell us a little bit more about the journey. How did Talk to Loop come about? Thank you. Thank you for inviting us. It's nice to be here and to be joined by Impala from Zambia. My name's Alex. I'm a New Zealander. I've worked in the humanitarian sector for 30 years or so, lived all over. And as my role became more and more senior, I had to take more and more decisions. And I felt increasingly uncomfortable with those decisions that I was taking, not being informed by and hearing the voices of local people and what was a priority for them. I had a big responsibility signing off project proposals and budgets and things like that. And I really wanted to be able to hear what did local people feel. And I was coming further and further away from that potential in those roles. So a hashtag Me Too movement and other online digital systems really felt like a completely different environment to when I started and you had to make a 10-second Pariah phone call to say that you were still alive when I started to now where everybody's still connected on a daily basis. And surely we can shift the second and the system to be able to listen to people in real time and use some of that technology that's developed in the private sector and bring that to the humanitarian and the development and the peace building spaces to engage much more on a real-time basis at scale with local people and to give them the voice, the power, the decision-making and the authority that they need and deserve to have better responses, better services that they're entitled to. So that was kind of the, the starting bit. I never wanted to start a, a charity or st- tech startup or nothing like that. But here we are now, two and a half years on with Loop in six countries, 15 languages and five different input channels. So we're definitely in the early days. There's a long way to go, but we've learned a lot about trying to shift that power and decision-making of voices. And for me, how did I get in and start to get engaged with Loop? My background basically has been a lot of work with civil society organizations and a lot of work in and around accountability, basically training civil society organizations and trying to get them to create platforms, for instance, for community members through which then they can hold duty bearers accountable. So my link was through an organization that was hosting Loop. It's called the Zambia Governance Foundation. And the CEO there basically introduced me to Alex because she had known of my work and because I've done a lot of work with them. And so the journey has been one of seeing Loop grow from just almost like a concept. I think Alex, the first time we spoke, it was like, you know, this thing that was going to happen. And for me, the excitement was, you know, this is going to be digital. This is going to be something that can go everywhere because now in Zambia, everybody is digitalizing. People out in the communities have phones and the options that Loop offered were really, really exciting. And so when Alex said to me, could you help us monitor how this will work? I thought, yeah, why not? this would be great. And so that has been my engagement. And the journey has been very interesting from seeing the setting up to seeing how the bearers of the technology that are supposed to be taking it to the people actually doing that and learning lessons from that has been very, very interesting. So yeah, that's been part of what my journey has been about. Amazing. I'm really excited to dig into some of those lessons. Mm -hmm. And it it really does seem like Talk to Loop has has taken off. And it it sounds like, you know, from both of what you're saying, that it's filling a, a need that, you know, people were aware of. People knew that we needed to feedback 
to participants. You know, we needed to shift that power. But actually, there just wasn't something to do that effectively, or there wasn't a space where lots of people, uh, sorry, a platform that, that people could use. And I was looking at your organizational structure and sort of how it's formed. And you mentioned these host organizations. That seems like a way to make sure that it's embedded in the right places. Could you tell me a bit more about that? Um, so we have what's called a charitable franchise model. So Loop Global is just providing the technology, the quality and the consistency and trying to find opportunities for the hosts and to grow it to other locations if need, if helpful. And then a networks of local actors, and civil society organizations host Loop within each of the countries. So we're invited to each of the countries. We don't just turn up. It's always invited by local mm-hmm. actors. And then they host it, they own it, they roll it out. They employ local user-centered design groups or organizations to help ensure that it's relevant nationally and we can learn from their existing knowledge. They employ people like Impala who are you know knowledgeable and integrated mm-hmm. into the national ecosystem and understand the network and the barriers and the opportunities and can monitor, do monitoring and evaluation about how to grow and improve and learn more quickly. And then we work together in an equitable basis to try to provide something that's valuable to that context. And I think what we've learned is that that can be quite different in every country. Just coming back to your first point, I think that there's lots of different approaches to providing feedback, to monitoring and evaluation, to reporting of abuse, etc. But there are also lots of barriers that have become more and more evident what they are. And I think Loop is just one element that's complementary to face-to-face meetings and other approaches that's trying to help to round that out and address those identified barriers and not to sort of be a panacea or anything. Yeah. And Paula, did you want to add anything there? One can add the fact that, and I think we'll get to it as we go delve into just what type of organizations will host. I think for a country that who's sort of only just starting to really experiment with the use of digital tools, to reach out to people. I think it's been very interesting to see how even those that have been running with similar sort of platforms, like we have the Zambia police, for instance, that have a platform where you can call in over gender-based violence issues. And they've been overwhelmed with, you know, people reporting other crimes. You know, so but then Loop offers you that opportunity to both report what would be sensitive stories and what would be like almost like non-sensitive stories. And um I think seeing how open then people like the Zambia police are to to wanting to use this platform has actually been part of the journey and again very very exciting to to see but again it's how would they host it because this government now we're asking to start to think about hosting something like that so we can basically still talk through that to you and that's quite a nice link to what alex was mentioning earlier about the host organizations how, how do you identify them or how do you how do you say or how do they know about talk to loop and actually reach out to you and say you know this is something we want to do what does that look like every country it's been slightly different we have people from different countries reaching out to us probably at least twice twice a week saying we've heard about Loop, can you come? Obviously, we need funding and it needs to be the right environment and there needs to be a number of organisations interested to do that. So, yeah, it's been quite organic in every country it's different. Always civil society organisations making sure that there's that independence. And then we set up a steering group of different representative actors. Sometimes that happens immediately. So in the Philippines, they set up that steering group and then the steering group collectively decided who should be the host. So that's not really up to us. It was up to them to decide. We set out some parameters about ensuring independence, etc., and what they would need to do in that role. And then they collectively sort of voted. And in other countries, like in Zambia, we had the Zambian Governance Foundation, which is yeah. a really lead strong actor and shift the power. They're now going through a process of creating a steering committee, an advisory board of actors that have sort of gotten in, involved in the process and then trying to create that ownership buy-in through that advisory board. So every country looks slightly differently, but definitely on those advisory boards can be government, can be international actors, UN agencies in some countries. Some countries like in Zambia, it's much more around GBV, gender, etc. Whereas in, in the Philippines, it's much more disaster risk reduction. So yeah, it looks very different in each country. But it sounds yeah. very versatile in terms of, yeah, how people want to use it or, or kind of, I suppose, the national and where the sort of national governance or the organisations there are, are most focused. Talk to Loop allows like for that kind of adaptability, which is very cool. 
Alex, you mentioned earlier about the barriers, and I'd like to come back to that a little bit in terms of why it's been so hard. And and I'm generalizing here. I know it's not been hard for everybody, but why it's been so hard generally for the organization to be able to generate these feedback cycles and impala from your monitoring and evaluation experience, it often feels like that it's been quite a, a last thought or a hard way. You know, there's lots of barriers to, to talk to people because of logistics, maybe cultural differences, lack of resources, and it hasn't necessarily been prioritized, particularly on closing that feedback loop. So I think maybe organizations will be able to collect data and talk to rights holders and participants, but then reporting back to them or telling them how that data was used is often quite a, a last or, f- or forgotten part of the monitoring and evaluation. Would you agree or, or would you sort of see that there has been successes there? And Impala, I'm looking at you there. Yeah, absolutely. I think also from the, you know, the perspective of me having been involved in just basically building capacity of civil society organizations to engage duty bearers, but also then to be able to take feedback back. I think you 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 know you identify so many gaps. One of the most critical gaps has been civil society's own understanding of what the processes are with regard to say policy legislation formulation and also uh, policy implementation. So being able to identify who they actually go to when they've identified an issue, knowing who it is that they have to hold accountable is one of the biggest, biggest problems that we have. This even goes around just understanding what legislative processes are there that stop them or allow them to do certain things. So that's that for me, that's one of the biggest challenges. It's how do they even take forward or take back information if they haven't even passed it on to the right sort of people. So one of the key problems. But I think other than that, we've had cases where civil society will, for instance, bring forward an issue to a duty bearer, rightly so, but then they don't actually follow up to ensure that they see through what it is that they've actually brought forward. And again, they leave they leave the communities that they still say they represent, you know, just sort of just, just out there, really not 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 knowing what it is that's going on. And I think it's it's partly like a mindset change. Sometimes I think that some organizations do it because then I take the box. I had it in my log frame that I was going to undertake this activity where I was going to have a platform with, you know, between say the community and a duty bearer. And then once that is done, take that's the end of it. But what, what is the what is it? What did you want to come out of that? There are certain places where I had evaluated say, a, a particular program, and what they did was they built a, a knowledge base within the community so that anything that they started was sustained then by the community. So whereas they created the platform where they brought duty bearers together and the community spoke out about something, they then had told the community, we are leaving. After this meeting, we leave. You have to exchange telephone numbers. You have to know where their offices are. And when I went over to evaluate this particular program, was a whole one and a half years after the community was still saying, look, we do still hold the duty bearers accountable, you know. So I think it's also knowing how these civil society organizations and any other stakeholder can build the capacity of those communities to be able to sustain what they themselves start because civil society run out of money, which is the other challenge. So a lot of them will put forward in their budgets, will hold the platform, but they will not have in the budget how will we take back this information to to the communities um here in zambia for instance we work from national level then you have provincial level and then you go down to the districts and you have the different communities in certain cases things are taken up to the national level and the duty bearers at the district level sit there wondering what was decided by the national level so even the channel of communication between national level government and district level government doesn't quite exist so even if civil society wasn't taking back, you know, information to community where the district level say government officials can, they don't because there's not always this sort of link to know what the national level has decided, for instance. So a typical example would be where a district has a shortfall with regard to budgetary allocation for education at the district level, and the schools don't have enough money. The community come forward and make make out and say, look, we need for you to increase this. A civil society raises it as an issue, policy paper is taken up to the national level. An answer is given back, sorry, the Minister of Finance said you can't have more money. And then it's quiet. But then the national level doesn't get in touch with the district level. It's government to government. And then the 
civil society also doesn't go back to the community to tell them. So I think it goes, you know, duty bearers also have an, you know, an obligation to also ensure that they're passing information one way and civil society also has a role to play in all of that. So there's several just basically challenges I think that I've actually come across regarding just closing the feedback loop. Yeah. And you mentioned Maybe love. Alex can get- yeah, Alex, do you have anything to add there? No, I think there's many different ways to take this discussion out there with regards to gaps. I mean, there's obviously power, access, maybe rural communities, women uh, not and invited to certain discussion groups and language. Access to technology is often cited as an issue, which is why our approach, we try to cross the digital divide where you can share phones, etc. Literacy is another big barrier to people feeding back. You have boxes and or SMS. They don't, you know, feel comfortable typing or writing. And and the closing the loop is about access often. So it needs to be done remotely and and who has power to decide what's being asked? Who needs to be informed? Who are we accountable? I think that often sits with those who have access to the funding, doesn't necessarily sit with those who the funding's for. Yeah, 100% yeah. agree. And I think I sort of feel a little shameful thinking about the extractive data collection processes that have happened in the past that have, have often been cited as, you know, well, this power holder has said, you know, we don't have resources to go back or there isn't, you know, logistical, it's just not feasible in places like South Sudan. You just, you know, you just can't go back. So I, I very much feel some of those challenges and, and those kind of somewhat excuses that, that come back for reasons why participants or rights holders don't understand, you know, what is happening or what's going on. Um, I used to work in South Sudan and, and was a researcher and would go out, collect the data, come back, and, and then that would be the end of it. You never heard how that data was used, anything really. So yeah, that in of itself, I think one of you mentioned there, that kind of mindset shift, I think is, is a really big part of this. But then how do you take that conversation to the duty bearers or, or the, the donors or the power holders, it, do they also kind of integrate into the process of talk to loop and this closing the loop process? Do, do you have conversations with them as well? So just imagine in that situation in South Sudan. So if loop was in South Sudan and you were going out and doing research and asking people questions face-to-face, one-to-one, door-to-door, etc. Imagine if at the end of every single one of those encounters, you could say, if you want to continue this conversation, or if you know somebody who has something to feed back on with regards to this question, or if there's something you don't feel comfortable saying to me, but you want to report about something else or about my, this process, then you can do so safely through this free callback number this number. And that information will get to us if it's safe or it will get to the right person if it's not safe. And that if everybody did that in their different interactions, you would be building up this data and you'd be building up a safer response and environment for people to report what's important to them. And you'd also be adding on to your data. So you'd probably get information from more women, people who are disabled, people identifying as LGBTQT if they can't otherwise, people who are reporting things that they might feel unsafe to do face-to-face, which is what a lot of people have been telling us, that they can't say things because it will defile them. And if they're anonymous, then they feel safer to be able to say things that won't, you know, their risks are lower for them. And imagine if you could then also do a sort of bulk reply to everybody who did choose to engage with you after that survey saying, you know, these are the top line findings. This is what has been decided and could do that six months later or whatever. And and that would then be translated into the appropriate language for those people. But some of them might not choose to reply you know, continue the conversation, but that's their choice as well. But yeah, that this is the way of the future, you know, this is this is possible now. It wasn't possible 30 years ago. It wasn't possible 10 years ago, but it's a different way of thinking about collaboratively working together to close those feedback loops and cycles and discussions. Yeah. Empire, doesn't this make your monitoring and evaluation heart sing? It makes mine (laughs) when Alex is talking about being able to do that. I'm like, wow, yes. Yes, I, I think for, for me, the excitement with Loop is the the other thing that I really find exciting is the fact that at least for the stories that one is openly you know able to share, everybody just wants to be heard. Everybody wants to know somebody took down and I and, you know, they, and they can literally see what it is they have said translated right there on, on the platform. Right. So they know they have been heard. Now, the next step is to see whether or not they, you know, something they get a reaction, for instance. But the mere fact that they can go back and say, look, this has not been acted on. 
I think Loop provides that. It also provides this interface between those that are saying, look, we need something done and those that can actually do something about it. So we've had times when somebody comes in and complains about a particular service at a particular facility, say a government facility, and immediately they're able to get redressed because the civil society picks it up, goes with this person, literally goes up with this person to this facility and sorts out whatever the issue was. And this this gets you know, it's, it's going to gain momentum. That's that's for sure. As more and more people learn what is possible, I think people will pick it up and, and use it a lot more. And I think that for me, that's that's what's exciting. The fact that people know they have been heard, they can see, oh, that's me that say that. And then, of course, then follow up and, and make sure that the people that they want to hold accountable are being held accountable. If I can add on one more thing, quite often organizations say, oh, we can't let people know and we can't ask people to feedback because we don't have the resources or the cap- capacity to respond to all of their needs. Mm-hmm. And the point of a collective open platform is that you're not responsible for everything, for everybody. And we all know that the needs are much greater than any of us can deliver on. Mm-hmm. So the idea is that people can feed back and the organizations that are responsible in that area or have funding for that specific purpose can listen and learn or donors can think, oh, look, actually people are requesting more of X and I'm funding Y. Maybe we need to uh, do course correction within our project or I think about that for Mm. a different partnership, et cetera. And we've seen that happen as an emergency response in the Philippines or in Indonesia unfolded. We saw that data sort of being used to inform project design, funding decisions, policy, et cetera. I mean, it's still small scale in early days, but that's the idea. Yeah, that sounds really great. And that made me think about how many times I've come across communities where they're like, oh, we've had, um, you know, four sets of people come and ask us questions, this data collection fatigue, you know, and and it's mm. just so many times people are coming asking the same people the same questions. But if you've yeah. got a space like that, you know, where you can already see what, what people's needs are, it's collective, it's collaborative. I mean, that sounds like a great solution. Is it the case that that people are sort of drawing from that? You mentioned an example, Indonesia there, and, and I think in the Philippines. Are there any other examples that you can give of of how people are using that data? So we've done an annual report for last year, pulling out some of the case studies of what we've learned. And it's small scale. You know, we've only really been operational and used um, for one full year in a few countries. And so at small scale, we can see the data being used on loop by policymakers looking at what are the patterns that we see and designing policy, backing that up with qualitative and quantitative data, which you can see on loop directly and taking that to inform decisions. Um, And we see that happening. We also see it being used throughout the full cycle of an emergency response. So people saying there's 30 people on a house over here and that going to the emergency response services to help them. And then people in emergency response shelter saying, thank you so much for the food. It's I can I can find my family again, and then in the in the recovery phase, saying we need we need a house, I need corrugated iron, I need support build rebuilding my home, and then four months later, people saying thank you, I'm in my home, it's great, but actually it's not safe for my children for us to go to the toilet because there's no lighting in the street, or for my children to study at night which they used to, and then local organizations using that qualitative and quantitative data to put together a proposal to get funding, then delivering eco um, lighting for that community. And then you see them saying, thank you for the lighting and my kids are back at school or, or whatever mm-hmm. it is, you know, the sort of closing of that loop. You can definitely see that pattern and then there's elections and you know, there's a different topic that comes up. So you can definitely see those types of patterns where the information, when there's sufficient of it, is informing decisions. So uh, there was a lot of educators in the Philippines after COVID saying the children don't want to come back. We really need a, a little investment to get toys and books and ways to get them to feel more comfortable to return. And then that was funded by a charity, for example. So yeah, there's a few examples. And I think the bigger, more powerful ones, which in Parliament, knows quite a bit about are also the sensitive stories. So yes. the stories which aren't on the O platform, which are quite phenomenal, and you just see the statistics of it. So mm. yeah, they have direct impact on individuals. Wow. Yeah. And Paolo, can you share a little bit more about that? Yeah, of course, because they're sensitive stories, then you you, you have to be a little careful about how much you give out. Don't be Alex. Of course. But <laughs> yeah. I think I think that we've had such a positive response at a really, really high level 
with the stories that came out of a particular um, section of, of the country, particular geographical location. And I think the response was taken so seriously that they, they set up structures within the Said community to try and resolve what had been identified as a big issue in that particular community. And this has been sustained over time. Now, the beauty about, again, having Loop is that if anything starts to fall apart, the same people that initially reported it should be able to report it and say, look, things are falling apart and we still need help here. But this has been great success, I think, in, in a number of cases. We've even had, you know, where this one I can probably give as an, a, a typical example. It makes a big difference when you have somebody in a hospital that is ill-treating, say, patients. Just something that simple. All right. So this bad egg of it <laughs> within the medical sector gets reported on. But to see how home management then takes it up and it becomes a disciplinary issue. And they made an example of meant that for all the other patients that were in that section of the hospital, this person was taken away from, you know, from, from, from their, yeah, from this basically inter- interacting and engaging with them. And it was reported that it made a bit, very big difference. And this is just one person that was being really bad, but affecting an entire, you know, section of the hospital, which was a cancer section of the hospital. Wow. And they get treated and they, they get, exactly. So, you know, it's some, some of them seem almost like, little things like, oh, there the disciplinary action was taken. But when you think about how many people that has impacted on, then you just feel, oh, this is, this is really great. And when you talk to people that had gone through it, had made the report and how happy they actually are that something was done at the hospital, then you really just feel really crazy happy about what Luke has offered to, to these people. So, yeah, I think, I think it's, it's, it's something that it's like we're saying with, you know, from the beginning, it's a journey. And I think seeing how it's actually progressing is something else. Of course, you do get a lot of resistance as well. We've had some, like I said, some platforms that are similar to Loop. And when somebody thinks, well, Loop is might might create a it's a parallel system and maybe people will get confused. No, I don't think people will get confused. One platform is not necessarily being accessed by the entire country. And having 10, 15, 20, a thousand platforms is still okay as long as they can be managed and something can be done with any any of the reports that are coming through. So yes, we, we have had a little bit of resistance from some quarters where they thought maybe Loop will, will sort of you know confuse people. But then when you get the response from civil society that understand what Loop can offer, they, they're just excited and they don't see it as a contradiction. They don't see it as a parallel system. Instead, they see it as something that will support the work that they're actually actually doing. Great. And thanks for sharing that example. It really made me feel, I don't know, just some way of like, wow, okay, that's so impactful. You say it's small, but it really feels like a a huge difference. Um, You mentioned there the resistance piece. Are are there any other challenges or or resistance that you're getting in terms of having people take on Talk to Loop and the, the platforms? And I'm wondering there when you're talking about acting on the information from Talk to loop there must be some trust in talk to loop built you know that that what you have and and this way that you're allowing people to feedback is is meaningful and is is safe and and therefore the data that is pulled through is you know usable and true so i'm curious about other resistance or, or challenges you're having there i think again one of the most critical challenges that civil society as with the rest of the world are all struggling financially not a lot of them are able to have presence in the communities like they had before. So whereas some have been have shown great interest to host and own Loop, they're also arguing that we, we're not where we used to be before. And it's a little bit difficult for us to just take it out to the communities. We, we're not traveling as much as we could and this sort of thing. So that's that's one issue. They are struggling financially. And we've, we've explained it. You're not paying anything for Loop. But if they're not going out to the communities, it's that much harder for them to actually roll it out as they should. But the other thing that we have noted, again, linked to the issue of finances, is that there's a huge staff turnover within the organizations. So sometimes you go out and you explain what Loop is and what it could do. And the person that you're meeting is really excited. And after a month or two, you say, go back and say, you know, we haven't heard from you. What's going on? And they're like, oh, the person you met left a week after you were here and we haven't quite replaced them. And, and you know, that becomes an issue. But again, more importantly, has been the whole issue of how how seriously do people take MNE? I think it's the first function to drop off the, 
of the budget line where, you know, if they can, they just sort of get rid of it. And let's say it's all about traveling out to the communities just for fun. But I think we've also seen the capacity capacities within the organizations to actually monitor and evaluate isn't always that good. So people are struggling a lot to understand why they need to, other than the donor says that we need to report on our impact and outcomes. And, and you know, that's, that's what they focus on when they need to do it only. So finding value sometimes for or some organizations, and you on the outside can see how they can use Loom, but they, they struggle a little bit to, to just, okay, how do we take it on? But like I said, again, part of the journey has been seeing how some of these organizations, we've got Transparency International, we've got some of them that are doing social accountability interventions, taking it on and saying, look, I think we'd like to experiment with this. So that's going to be something that we, I think, follow up slowly and see how best they, they, they move with it. But it's it's been going back and saying, you can do this. We'll hold your hand. We can do this. It's yours. Just use it. <laughs> I like it. You don't That's have to great even pay sales for pitch. it. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Alex, did you have anything to add there? <laughs> yeah, I think... Um, For me, sort of more at the systems level, I see that a lot of questions come back about trusting the authenticity of the authors, whereas the biggest issue, I mean, we've got many different layers in there to manage spam and et cetera. But I I think that the biggest mind shift about the way that Loop operates is that it's a collective and an open. And we're not used to that. We're used to putting in our proposal, our budget line and our activity and our output and controlling that and having ownership over that and reporting back on that and closing that off and having control of the narrative that comes back and the data that comes back and choosing who will see it, when they'll see it, when they'll get a reply, what we're asking, etc. And the idea of the future, not just in humanitarian development piece, etc., is everything's opening up. It's much more collective. It's much more collaborative. And this is a different approach. That It's a different mindset. It's a different way of thinking that you know, what will Loop do for me? It's more, this is a tool that you can use and integrate into what you're already doing in an open way where we can work more together, where communities have just as much access to information as anybody else. I've been there when I started in this sector. I had this protectionist mindset, you know, like we need this data. We need to know what's going on. We need to be able to control um, how people see this data and all of that. I was 100% there. And it really does take a mindset shift to be like, okay, no, we need to open this up. This isn't just about what we're doing. This is about what everybody is doing. So completely can relate to that. And And it's exactly that. It's a hard cultural mindset shift in order to open up. But when you use the word open, I wonder if people also feel a, ooh, all that data is open and it kind of comes back to Umpala what you were saying about the sensitivity of some of that data. I guess that's sort of more protected, that has a, a separate kind of um, protected process. Is that right? Yes. So maybe I can allow again, Alex, you, you can respond to that because there's actually two very distinct reporting systems through Loop. One deals with sort of less sensitive stories and then mm-hmm. another, the other one will deal with the sensitive stories very differently. But perhaps um, Alex, you can explain that further. Yeah, so we have two different flows of the information. The user, so the local community person who's deciding whether that information is sensitive or not can choose, but there's no stigma attached to the advertising of the platform. So a woman, for example, might say thank you, and then she can take the phone to her bedroom and she can report something very sensitive. And she's not, if somebody was to see her using Loop, she could say, I'm just feeding back on the bag of rice or something. So it's not like she's seen with a tool that's about reporting sexual exploitation and that that then is a risk to her. So it's advertised as a safe, feedback, generic sort of approach. But then when the information comes in, they can choose whether it's sensitive or not. And then our local moderators also have a protocol about what can be posted on the open platform. And if people disagree with us, they can always request for that to be removed from the platform. So if it's sensitive, it could never go to the open platform. It then is reported to a sensitive case manager at the global level, ensuring quality and consistency, best practices, etc., and data protection. And how do we ensure a survivor-centered approach. And then they work very closely with the lead moderator who's done training, safeguarding, GBB and SEA, and um, about how to manage that. So you using the local languages, making referrals, etc. And we're not 
here to name and shame, where Loop is here to try to promote and create a better services for local people. And so if somebody was to defame an organization or make an accusation about them, then that's all sensitive information, even if the original author doesn't think it is. If you have a look through the open platform, you won't see anything on there that's going to make it into the Daily Mail or, <laughs> or you know, uh, have a negative impact on an organization. It's anything that is of a... And I think that organizations, larger organizations specifically, taking time to learn to trust our processes around that. And that's understandable. But yeah, hopefully we can build that trust <laughs> more quickly yeah. so that we start to have this mind shift around open, collective and safe as well. You know, we've put a lot of time and effort into the data protection, GDPR compliance and all of that aspect, well, especially with the sensitive reporting. So yeah, they, they go hand in hand, but they have separate processes. We've even had cases where somebody thinks this is a really sensitive story. And maybe if I report it, I'll, I'll still get found out and they will report to somebody else who then reports on their behalf. So they still trust the system, but they just think, okay, maybe somebody else reports it for me that that will still be okay. So that's that's also an interesting sort of dynamic that um, we've sort of observed, which we'll see how that sort of goes forward. Then we've got the LGBTIQ plus community for them, because that is actually criminalized locally within Zambia. That's something that they've openly expressed. They're a little fearful either way. They, they, they're not too sure that they can use the use the platform. And of course, it's their right to or not to. And they've got their own ways in which they, they you know, they express what their issues are. So they, they also haven't been left out. They've also been given this opportunity to to use Loop. Yeah. Great. I mean, it, it sounds very much like you're also through Talk to Loop's approach aware of the different communities that may or may want to use this. Yeah. I was going to ask you actually who defines what is sensitive. And and I guess that should be the person who's providing the feedback. But then, Alex, as you say, if you come across something that is defaming or, or could be sensitive if it's put in the open platform, that also feels like a, a quality assurance piece. Is that right? Yeah. So we have different layers. The author has their first decision. And if they choose that something sensitive and we our protocols would say it's not, it's still sensitive. They've only given their permission for us to process it as a sensitive story. So it could never go on the open platform. And then if they, they don't say it's sensitive, but we feel that it is, then our moderators will do that and follow the, those protocols to ensure safety of everybody using the platform. We have generic protocols, which is just to keep everybody safe, etc. But then in some countries, some things are less safe than in other countries. And our local teams through dialogue and risk assessments will identify if there's any adaptations that are needed for each country. So, for example, there are some things that we wouldn't post on the open platform in Somalia, especially around gender issues and gender mm. violence that we would, that might be less sensitive or in Ukraine, for example. And that's defined by the local host organizations and their network through discussion. That's not something that's decided by me. <laughs> <laughs> and then... I've just I've actually just remembered another barrier. Yeah, go for it's it. It's funny how civil society civil society will stand up and talk about how we need to hold the you know duty bearers accountable and all this sort of thing. But when Loop is introduced, some of them will say, Oh, but won't this show us up? If people start to give feedback about us, what happens if our donor sees what you know, don't you if you're doing good, you're doing good. And if something negative comes up, you ought to be able to deal with it. So some have resisted because they think, oh, what if something bad comes up and we lose our funding? You know, so then you start to ask, you know, if you're going to be holding people accountable, you yourself had better be be clean. Maybe not squeaky clean, but clean enough to be able to get feedback when it's when it's there. And just to add on that, I think there's a real culture shift across even the private sector, you know, probably doing it better than we are, is that it's good to get criticism. It's good to hear. Mm -hmm. if, if you're not hearing, somebody else is hearing anyway. And yeah. if you want to improve and provide a better service and add more value, then just simply listening to that feedback and responding responding to it and taking note and creating change. And nobody's asking for any more. We all uh, you know, are learning as we go. And you'll see stuff on loop on there, people saying, please, can we have this or that? It's like, oh, that's brilliant feedback. Thank you so much. Mm. We can do that at the next stage or something like that. And if yeah. organizations, even you know, you see Trustpilot are responding and saying, I've had terrible experiences at a restaurant. And if they say, I'm really sorry, give you the dessert for free or something, you know, I'm a loyal customer. <laughs> and I don't think we have that mentality in 
in our no. sector. And I think this is, yeah, people true. are very, very grateful. 75% of the stories that we get back are thanks. Mm. And then they might be asking for additional services. And these people don't expect the world from one organization. It's not one person's responsibility to fix everything. And I think that's a, this mindset shift that mm. we're trying to contribute towards. Yeah, completely agree. Uh, so then let's say you, you do have, you know, maybe a set of, of negative or, um, feedback or failures about a certain organization or, or a certain power holder. Does Talk to Loop take that to the power holder or, or how does the power holder know that that feedback exists? So if there is an individual case about uh, fraud or abuse, we will refer put it into the available referral mechanism. So there might be a an SEA coordinator, sexual exploitation abuse reporting line, or there might be a fraud reporting line. And if we're, at the, we're aware of that line and we know that it's trusted and somehow it's separate from the abuseful situation, which isn't always the case, then we'll report it into that. Sometimes we've reported into those and there's been no response or there's been, a, there's been no response. It hasn't been safe. So then we've taken it up and around that. So for example, and then there's been action. So sometimes that might be at the country level to the HQ, or it might be from the project level up. It it depends on the individual stories. Everything is different. Everything is based on the information of the survivor's choices and considering their safety as the starting point. We have had, and this is what's been interesting as part of our learning from last year, we see people using Loop to get around systems that are in place but are failing them. So call centers where there's no answer, reporting lines where there's no response or inadequate responses. And then we can sort of take that to the appropriate person, knock on the door, have meetings, try to um, push it a bit further, which those community members might not have access to. They might not speak that language. We've also seen clusters of red flags So somebody might report in and say, why is the uncle of the chief of the village on the beneficiary list when he's got three houses or something like that? And then just with that, you don't have enough information to do anything. It's it's, it's still treated as a sensitive story. But if you start to get 20 or 30 in one geographic area around one specific beneficiary list, then that information, we can take that to the actors that are responsible for that beneficiary list. So we you take it up. Um, this is we have an example in the Philippines where it went to the government authority, and they could then send somebody in to investigate further and to understand what was going on. But with each, if if each of those one individual reports had gone to four or five different organisations, yeah. you can't do anything with that. Mm. Um, but when you start to get these clusters of reporting, then it, it gives you enough data to take action, or for the appropriate act to take action. It really does make you think about the, I guess, the just how disparate all that data and information was. And if people did find out something bad was happening, they're not obligated to share it with anybody else for sensitive reasons. But then nobody knows that's happening and other actors continue to operate, you know, without knowing anything. So, yeah, hugely, it really does sound like it, it brings it together in a much more targeted way to respond to the needs of the communities. Yeah. And Paula, did you have something to add? No, I was just going to go back to the example that was that was given I think some sensitive stories I really I mean it's it's you, you can't even hold back you can't you can't sit there and think oh somebody will eventually respond and I think here in, in country there have been efforts then made even outside of loop to 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 refer the case to appropriate authorities and to try and ensure that something actually gets done because then when the case is very serious you 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 clearly just want to really get in and do something because it, it affects the credibility of of loop i think when nothing is done immediately so yeah it, it has worked here in zambia as well yeah i mean that, that's powerful and and i guess the responsibility on talk to loop to take that information and make sure that somebody has seen it to somebody is is you know aware of it i mean how challenging is that like how much do you take on sort of the responsibility and like pass that to people what if people don't act on it i mean how does that feel or how yeah. how does that work is that not all of our responsibility? I'm sorry, but it is. If I'm a staff member or a volunteer and I see something happening in my community or in my project, it's my responsibility to make sure that that information gets to the right person who can take action on it. And I think it's just, we can't always deliver, you know, and the sad thing that I've seen over the patterns of what's coming into loop is a lot of people who are victims of violence they're not asking for accountability. They're simply asking for support to, to survive and to get back on their feet. 
And that kind of lack of expectation about accountability is really sad. But I think it's all of our responsibilities to try to, you know, help those people that need it. And um, no matter what role we're in. Yeah. I mean, I've I've, I've experienced a case where in monitoring, I came across a, a woman that said she had made the same complaint over drainage systems in her area that were causing like flooding. And she says, you know, cholera breakouts and whatnot. And I then managed to call the, the sort of officer that was in charge of that area from the local government. And he says, well, yeah, I'm aware of it. Yes, I'm aware of, of, of the, you know, concerns. I said, you know, it's been reported a couple of times. How come nothing's happened? And he was talking about, oh, but we don't really have the finances and whatnot. But it was, again, how they haven't then created that feedback to the community to say, we hear you, but we may be constrained until such and such a time. But I think it still made a difference to to call this man and say to him, have you heard me? Yes, I have heard. But what are you doing about it? Well, we wish we could, but we can't. Mm. But again, it's, yeah, it's, it's a feedback again that for me, I think was was missing. Yeah, no, thanks for sharing that example too. Alex, not sure why you're saying sorry. Totally agree. <laughs> <laughs> I just think there's, there's a barrier to, you mm. know, we are all responsible for reporting it. We're not all responsible responsible for yeah. acting you know we don't want yeah. to, there's definitely those yeah. lines but loop mm. isn't providing services we're not providing counseling mm. we're not providing mm-hmm. cash our role is simply to be a tool that other people can yeah. use to do their job better and to get mm-hmm. greater support and services that local people see as impactful and valuable to them yeah that's yeah and it, it you know from this conversation is very powerful you say it's just a tool but it's touching on so many changes that the sector needs to move oh, towards yes. and you know it's touching on all these like social norms behavior change attitudes cultural barriers all sorts of levels you know feedback is when you say oh you know just give some feedback but then when you we uncover it and we start to chat like this the layers the complexity you know it's it's really exciting and really complicated at the same time and i think that you know this tool um sounds very very powerful something else that came up in the conversations was you mentioned you know feedback and sometimes i think we have this assumption that feedback is just at the end just maybe at the beginning and just at the end Mm. and then alex you mentioned earlier about kind of like different feedback points things change in communities people might want to feedback about different things and it's almost like talk to loop is your accompanying journey of feedback alongside the projects and i think for for people in the sector that's an important reminder that feedback isn't just at the beginning and the end it's actually you know all the way through yeah but was there yeah. anything else on Paula did you have anything else to add there sorry no it's just you know you can't have an ME discussion and talk about change if you're not going to bring in the women and you know the gender component I think again that's the other exciting thing about Luke the fact that it allows for one to you know it's not just in English you can use other local languages but now we have voice I can never get quite get it right <laughs> uh Alex interactive so- Interactive voice response and reply, IVR. Exactly. So you've got all of that. And for the local woman that may not necessarily, you know, be as literate as, as everybody else, having all those options, I think, is, is so, so important. And again, it's something that civil society organizations need to do. We're giving voice to people that have not had voice for such a long time. And it's not just over issues of gender-based violence, but even the less sensitive sort of issues, like, you know, the, the, the woman that wants to know a little bit about abortion and is denied those sort of information, that information, and she reports it and immediately is, is you know, gets a response. So there's so much impact that you can actually have or that we actually are having on account of making it possible for those that generally do not have a voice to actually have a voice through the different platforms that are available. And I think for me, that's exciting. And it also goes to children. Of course, with children, there's a bit of a challenge because when they report more so for sensitive stories, there has been a case where, you know, they didn't use their own, for instance, telephone. They don't have access perhaps to the websites and whatnot. But when they've used it, they probably delete the message. And then if you do call back, they're not they're not there. An adult will answer the, the phone. But I think that eventually we will find ways in which even the children can can be engaged. And I think Loop, at least here in Zambia, is already trying to get through the schools. And I know that social movements have caught fire because of the youth and the young, the young ones. So I think that's also another, you know, literally low-hanging fruit um, where we can get certain reports being done through the younger sort of generation. Yeah. Who sometimes are fearless, hey? Which is nice. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Can I just build Yes. Two elements on there. One is that so when we do call back, especially if it's a sensitive report to a young person, they've got 
sort of way of managing the call so as not to put anyone at risk, which we're still learning about. And it's different in every country. And the other one is that we'd expected or everybody who said, oh, digital is exclusive, it's not inclusive in the sector. And therefore, you're going to only hear from men who are 25 years of age, for example. Mm. But actually, the majority of users on Loop are women between the ages of 30 and 59 years of age. And you can track who is reporting. So you can go in there and filter by your organization, your country or region, whatever. And you can see, oh, look, the majority are, you know, we're not, we haven't heard from anybody who is self-identified as having a disability, or we're hearing primarily from women, which was what happened in Indonesia in real time when they were using it as part of the response to the volcanic eruption. So then they tried to understand why that was. It was because it was happening, awareness raising was happening in the communities in the daytime and the men were out at work. So then they shifted it and at the end of the process, we had 50-50 representation. So I know that on your podcast, you talk a lot about inclusion and representation, et cetera. So just monitoring the data in real time as well helps to kind of adjust things to make sure that we're reaching and hearing from the right people. And that this assumption that um, only 25-year-old men (laughs) will be back is, yeah. Was, has not been found, even in Somalia, even in yeah, in every single country, if you look at the data, it's, it's showing women between the age of 30 and 59 are the, not the only ones, but the majority, or not even the majority, but the largest group. And yeah, I think a lot of that is because their responsibilities, you know, they're often reporting in for their elderly fathers or for their children or for a collective. So yeah, that's really interesting too. Yeah, and, and really interesting there that you touched on maybe that's representative of social norms in those contexts and, and who has responsibility for what. That's quite interesting. And a really good example of like, I guess, the real-time use of that data in Indonesia, finding that you know certain people were not reporting and then changing it immediately and, and getting it up to sort of 50-50 representation. That's really great. Mm-hmm. This conversation has been so interesting and, and as ever whenever I do these podcast episodes I have a million questions after the fact but we've really covered um, some really really interesting pieces about Talk to Loop and how it fits into the sector and how in of itself it's moving to, to, to move the sector in the right direction. If um, an organisation wants to work with you or, or use the platform where do they go and, and who do they talk to? Uh, so talktoloop.org and on there they can find out more information they can sign up to our newsletter if they're in any of the six countries for Philippines, Indonesia, Ukraine, Poland, Zambia, or Somalia. It's it's available. It's there to use. If they want to use it after having tested it out, um, they can contact me, alex at talktoloop.org, or put in a question on the email, the contacts, that'll come through as well. If they're looking at other countries, then just contact me directly for a discussion or to integrate it into a project or work that they're doing, then yeah, happy to discuss what we're all about great and you said you're getting quite a few inquiries around different countries so i guess moving forward you will be expanding across across different countries that's exciting well the interesting thing is that the strongest uptake is from local organizations who are closest to local communities they're the ones who are really seeing the value in this and jumping on it as part of their broader sort of approaches across projects across different donors etc and they're not the ones who have the funding to support us to expand into different countries or to grow in the countries where we are. So it comes at balance. We need to make sure that we're doing what we're doing well and deep and broad in the countries where we are and where there's an opportunity, where we're invited, then we're happy to discuss other contexts. But yeah, one day at a time. Yeah, absolutely. Great. Well, thank you so much. This has been a really, really interesting conversation. I'll put all the information about Talk to Loop in the show notes. So please feel free to visit the websites that Alex just mentioned. And again, thank you so much, Ampala and Alex. It's been really great. And I'm Lauren. I'm Ampala. I'm Alex. And this has been the Journey to Transformation. Thanks all. Bye. Bye-bye. Just a little note to say that you will have noticed that it's just me, Lauren, in today's show. Tia is absolutely fine. She's just on her clinical trial and we couldn't quite make this episode work. So it's just me today. Thanks for listening. Bye. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Journey to Transformation. Leave us a five-star rating and a written review wherever you're listening to this podcast. Journey to Transformation is written and edited by us, Tia Rogers and Lauren Burrows. Our music comes from Praz Canal.